0: Welcome. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield, and this is The Messy Middle. We all know that success rarely occurs in a straight line. So being able to find a way, not lose your way when things get tough, is a critical skill for any modern day leader. This podcast is designed for astute listeners who want to learn and then leverage the lessons from other leaders who are delivering results in a demanding context. You can find out more or subscribe so you never miss an episode at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. Lane Beachley is best known for her feats in the water. Being the only surfer to claim six consecutive world titles, she's earned the rightful reputation as being widely regarded as the most successful female surfer in history. But that success hasn't come without hurdles setbacks and struggle. And in this forthright and personal interview, Lane shares the inner workings of her mind and the internal wisdom she's developed that helps her not only navigate, but overcome the setbacks that she's experienced as a professional surfer and post-retirement when forging a successful career beyond the boundaries of sport. Open, honest, and full of insights This is one of those podcasts where you want to listen deeply, take some notes and learn from one of our country's great sporting legends and seriously good people, seven times world champion, Lane Beachley. Lane, welcome to the Messy Middle. We've been trying to have this conversation for a little while, and mostly because of my uh, incompetence, largely. But it's brilliant that we've been able to Aww. make it happen. And um, I it-
1: don't believe that's the case, Andrew. You're <laughs> being a little bit too self-deprecating.
0: <laughs> oh, maybe. Um, but it, look, it's a it's a real pleasure to be able to to speak to one of our country's great sporting legends. So, welcome to the Messy Middle.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Andrew.
0: I think it's a natural point or question to start because you've just come back from a surf and I've just mentioned to you it's it's wetsuit weather down here in Melbourne, but for all the wrong reasons. Is that a natural habitat for you to find when you need to relax, recalibrate and rejuvenate?
1: Yes, it is. The ocean is definitely my place of solace. It's where I always refer to seeking opportunity to as you say rest recalibrate and relax but then also I can go out there and be quite intense and focused and driven and (laughs) just it depends on the conditions and depends on what I'm I'm heading out in the water to achieve. So today it was a matter of rinsing off the day, cleansing my mind, having a bit of fun, not putting too much pressure on myself. Whereas yesterday I, the waves were quite good and quite solid and I'm, I just wanted to make the most of the opportunity I had out there. So the, my mindset really determines the attitude that I rely on in the water.
0: It's a nice approach because so often it's the other way around, isn't it? That We force ourselves into a way of being or doing and And sometimes it just seems harder than it needs to because we don't necessarily connect that mind and body connection.
1: I used to believe that I had to surf in order to be happy and now I realise that um, I'm happy because I surf. So that way I'm not so driven by it or concerned if I miss a day or so. Like I used to get really agitated if I miss a surf, but now I also recognize where my limitations are. And now I'm getting older, I'm becoming a little wiser and a little bit more tactile with my body. And if I know that I'm a little worn out and I've got a lot of work to do, then I'm actually better off not surfing until after I've done the work because surfing does drain some of the energy out of me,
0: even though it gives me a lot too. And being in the ocean, is that just a natural affinity? You've always had growing up and since you were young or is it a byproduct of just having so many years on the, the pro circuit?
1: It's a combination. It's a byproduct of having the advantage of growing up on Manly Beach with a beach-loving family with the last name Beachley and becoming a pro server. And it's also uh, an affinity that I've had from a very young age. I remember being put on the sand before I could walk and I just fell in love with nature. I fell in love with the inspiration that it gives me. I fell in love with the energy that it gives me. I fell in love with the connectedness and the connection that I have when I'm in nature. So I'm not just drawn to the beach, of course. I do love the ocean and it is my place of solace. It's my happy place, I refer to it, but I'm just in general drawn to nature. I, as a kid, I remember climbing trees. Now I I love to, you know, walking barefoot in the grass and um, just putting my son in the face for five minutes or uh, playing in the snow. I just really have this strong, gravitational pull towards all things nature.
0: And I think surfing such a great part of Australia's coastal landscape and there's, uh, I suppose, a huge difference between the weekend warriors surfing and, and someone <laughs> like you who, you know, seven times world champion, eight if you include the Masters, victory. And uh, I'm wondering, can you remember the time when you realised that this could be a real career for you?
1: It was later on than most people would expect you know i i declared as an 8 year old i was going to become a world champion and that was the result of being told i was adopted and and the way i had perceived that was being abandoned and rejected and so therefore i had decided that to become worthy of love since I've now been abandoned, rejected by my own mother. To, to prove to the world that I'm deserving of love, I have to become a world champion. Now, it's an ambiguous and auspicious goal to set myself as an eight-year-old. And then as a fifteen or 14 or 15-year-old, I decided that that avenue was going to be professional surfing. So I, I hadn't really committed to being a professional world champion surfer uh, until I was well into my mid-teens.
0: Which may sound crazy for some people because that, you say that's late and a lot of people would say that's really early. Yeah, true.
1: <laughs> yeah, you ask a lot of teenagers today what they want to do in their life and I wonder how many of them declare that they're going to become a world champion at something, or the world's best at something. Yes, I I you know, I but then I look at it's all relative to timing. I look at the kids today, you know, these eight, nine or five, eight, nine, 12-year-olds who are already cementing themselves on the world stage and, uh, and, but then I consider how long is their career going to be when they're putting that much pressure on themselves
0: at such a young age. The declaration in terms of you wanting to be successful, was that related or have a time signature around finding out about the adoption and things or was it completely separate?
1: Oh, I'm sure it's all interconnected in a way. You know, as an eight-year-old, I just had this urge and this very strong desire to to want to be loved, and I think it's a driving force in in all of us. And uh, I just had to find an avenue to express that, and sport was definitely that avenue. I mean, I loved playing cricket and tennis and soccer and hockey and basketball, even though I was very pint sized. And I mean, I didn't see my size or my gender as a barrier. I just saw um, sport as being my avenue and opportunity to to fulfill my desire to be loved. And, uh, and that was also the boundary and the parameters that I'd placed around it and the expectations I'd placed around it. So when I joined the tour as an 18 year old, I wasn't aware of all of these emotional, mental and um, spiritual connectors that were pushing me and driving me. And a lot of people today ask me, do you think you would have won six consecutive world titles without that level of drive and ferocity? And quite honestly, I don't know.
0: Looking back now with what you know, is there any advice you'd give yourself back then around, you know, from your future self back into your younger self?
1: Yes, there's there's lots of advice. And and I do have plenty of regrets, and I know life's too short for regrets. And if I had the opportunity to go back and and give myself advice at whatever age, whether it's in my, you know, bef- my preteens or my teenage years or even in my twenties, there's three pieces of advice I'd give myself. Number one is it doesn't have to be a struggle. So I needed to ask myself why was I so invested in struggle, and I was invested in struggle because I had truly believed that that's what it was going to take for me to become the best surfer in the world. It had to be hard to be worth of it. It had to be a struggle to be deserving. Um, well, to deserve the success, it had to be. I had to endure a whole lot of struggle. The other piece of advice I would be was to be kinder and more compassionate to myself and others. You know, I was tagged as having the compassion of a tiger shark, and that was not only the extension of the compassion or the empathy that I lacked for my competitors, but it started with myself. I've, I lacked com- empathy and compassion for myself. So, and how that how that played out in my life is that. For example, I would get severely injured and just deny the pain, deny the suffering and just push through it, which prolonged the pain and prolonged the suffering. And to this day I am now still managing um body and, and physical issues because of the fact that I, I failed to address it when it originally occurred. Um, and then the last piece of advice is that you're not on, you're not on this journey on your own. You're not alone. You do have a support team. You have people who love you and support you, and you are deserving of that love and support. And and uh, because of your fear of rejection, you will naturally want to push it away because your fear is driving your behaviours. You'll either behave in a way that gives people reason to reject you, or you'll reject them first to beat them to the punch. So, becoming aware of those fundamental principles may have saved me a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, and a <laughs> and a lot of struggle.
0: Yeah, it's a great it's a great uh, perspective, Lane and. Uh, how did you achieve in, in dealing with all that? Because that can be quite, you know, that cognitive fatigue of carrying around that and that drive from a, from a negative force can, can be obviously very positive uh, in, in your case in some circumstances but can also be very fatiguing. Was there things that you look back and think, oh, I did that well or, or that really took a toll?
1: There's plenty of moments that I look back and go, well, that took a heavy toll. Um, but then there's, yeah, there are many times when I look back on my career and go, well, I did that really well. You know, I what I did very well is I left a long-lasting legacy on the sport of surfing because of my awareness around being a very positive role model and leading authentically. So, so standing firm in my truth, owning my truth, being aware of my values and not allowing external circumstances to dictate those values to me. And what that also enabled me to do, especially as a teenager was to prevent me from being a victim of peer pressure so it stopped me from for example being sucked into an environment where I felt unsafe or where I felt like I had to do something I didn't want to do such as drugs or alcohol or smoking which a lot of teenagers get involved in and that also allowed me to then choose who I wanted to be surrounded by so I've chosen well I feel like I've had great people in my life and I still do have amazing people in my life and I'm really grateful for the shoulders of the people that I've stood on on the way up because I've had to lean on them on the way back down so as long as I'm still massaging the same shoulders and I know I've treated these people fairly and so I'm very proud of the relationships that I've developed and nurtured and held over a long period of time. So there's some of the things I'm really proud of. Um, some of the things I'm not so proud of are actually a, a direct um, flip of the same coin. So there's some relationships which I've just tarnished and burnt and ruined for the rest of my life that I'm not proud of. Um, and that's, and that takes two to play that dance. And so uh, those people will never forgive me and so it's a matter of me actually just having to learn to forgive myself.
0: Yeah, it's look, it's such a a great point that our we talk about, you know, one of the strengths can also be deployed in the different circumstance and become something that limits us and restricts us. And do you have strategies now of how you, you know, catch that in yourself and be able to calibrate back to more of who you want to be than that other shadow side where you think this can get me in trouble?
1: Yeah, because I I have a a predisposition to fear and self-doubt, which most people may be surprised to hear that. And that just comes down to my survival mode mechanism. You know, I felt like I was disconnected from joy from the moment I was conceived and then I was rejected the moment I was born. And then I had to fight for my life in a humidity crib for six weeks because I didn't have enough strength or nutrients in my body to survive. And so there's all these fighting spirits and um challenges in the you know in the first 9 months of my life and then those just became habitual patterns of behavior throughout my whole life it's you know it's tough to to spend too much time looking back <laughs> you know it's um it's a matter of maintaining an optimistic mindset and, and focusing on going forward. So a couple of things that I rely on, a couple of the tools that I rely on is first, just my awareness of self and having the courage to look in the mirror and actually view my own reflection. And a lot of people look at themselves and just judge themselves. They don't actually see what they see. They just see what they want to see or they see what they don't want to see. Yeah. And so I I use my mirror as my honesty barometer. I just—I literally look at it and I look into it and I look into my own eyes and I go, how am I doing today? How am I feeling? And what have I done that has led me to feeling this way, whether positive or negative or in between? Um, I also surround myself with people who I refer to as my honesty barometers. I have people who bring the best out of me, who elevate me, who nurture me and develop me, um, and most importantly are honest with me. And my self-talk, I'm a very reflective and introspective person where I'm constantly analysing how I'm feeling um, and taking full responsibility for that. So I'm never pointing my finger and laying the blame at someone for pissing me off or letting me down or agitating me. I'm taking responsibility for being in that state.
0: In terms of, you know, you you dominated the sport going back to, to surfing, you know, from 1998 to 2003 you know, became the only surfer to win six consecutive world titles, and I've heard you refer to that as as before adding the seventh that the the first six were sort of done in fear, and the the seventh was done from a place of love. And I just wondered is is that what you're referring to now about this drive of fear and uh, and your self perception that changed somewhere between that sixth title and seventh title?
1: Yes, definitely, because it became very clearly apparent to my body <laughs> in, in uh, specific measure that the way in which I was going about it was unsustainable because my body was just broken. Mentally, I was fatigued. Physically, I was broken and emotionally, I was dispirited and I had to do things differently. My body just wouldn't allow me to keep going the way I was going. So I had to find another way if I wanted to continue winning if I wanted to continue to compete and continue to win. So it was almost forced upon me and uh, and I responded in a loving and compassionate way as opposed to why is this happening to me? I asked the question, why is this happening for me?
0: Yeah, right. Can you, can you share a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so when we say, Why is this happening to me? we're stuck in a victimized mentality. And that means that it's just a constant push up pill. It's a constant shit fight. It's a constant struggle. And I'm not to say that we're not going to endure setbacks, but it's, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about um, shame and guilt and, and vulnerability. And, and so if you're in a victimized mindset and you have and if you've read any of Carol Dweck's work around the growth mindset and fixed mindset, you're in a real fixed mindset. Like this is, this is shit and your internal dialogue gets really negative. You start, becoming, you start to identify with your events and then you start to identify yourself through them. And uh, instead, of, instead of having a failure and saying, oh, that, that was a failure, you start becoming self-defined by them and saying, I am a failure and then you become shrouded in guilt and shame and fear. Um, And then it's a lot harder to build yourself back up and build up your confidence when you're reflecting on these periods of, of disappointment and struggle as defining moments. As opposed to opportunities for growth or improvement, which is just the difference in the in the question. Why is this happening for me? Well, this has happened for me because I realise that when this happens, I tend to go back into my default setting of survival mode. I go back into self-deprecation. I beat myself up. I get angry. I get agitated. I push the people who really want to be beside me to help me. I push them away. I get really, I get really aggressive. Um, And so all of these behaviours are serving me in a way where they're keeping me stuck (laughs) and they're preventing me from growing, whereas my ultimate objective is to grow and learn and let go and move on. So if I want to grow and learn and let go and move on, I've got to actually ask the question, why is this happening for me and stop seeking the answer immediately and just be open to the fact that the answer will will appear when the student is ready.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My two questions from what you've just said is one: how did how did you get to that level of awareness? Is it just paying attention to those things, or were there certain techniques that that you found helpful for you? You mentioned about looking in the mirror with some honesty, but were there other things that gave you that level of awareness and insight to to enable you to, to enact that change?
1: I like I set the goal when I joined the tour back in 1990 to win my first world title in five years, and it took me eight. And I wanted to quit <clears throat> after the fifth year on two, I was ready to quit because I hadn't achieved my goal in the time frame in which I'd set it. And fortunately I had a couple of people around me who talked me out of that and made me realize there were certain things I was doing that was holding me back from achieving my goal. Two years later, I was ready to quit again. And <laughs> and a friend of mine Um, introduced me to a thing called rebirthing, which is literally just a breathing technique where you lie on your back and you do a rhythmic circular breath where it's the – the uh, pressure or the intensity that you have on your inhale and your exhale is equal and all that does is get you into a real rhythmic meditative state and you just solely focus on your breath and what that does is it allows your body to process all stored emotion it can become it can be quite a frightening thing to do at first because you become aware of how much your body is storing how many events in your life you have suppressed and and forgotten about and it's and it's quite liberating once you start getting invested in it because you're just literally transmuting and releasing energy. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to process it. You don't have to understand it. You just let it go. So now I do these rebirthing experiences very often. Like I do them probably once a month, if not more often, especially if I'm going through intense periods. So that was one of the things that helped me become more self-aware was rebirthing uh, definitely the, the people I have around me, my honesty barometers that I refer to, the people, like I said, who are very honest with me. Another technique I learned was NLP, so neuro-linguistic programming, which just rewires the way that we think. So I had to start becoming aware of the negative chatter because we all have, what, fifty to 60,000 thoughts a day. <laughs> You've got to wonder how many of those are actually serving you, how many of those supporting you, how many of those are nurturing your growth as a human being. So it was a matter of um, just getting in touch with how I was thinking and feeling because I used to use my quick wit and sense of humour as an armour and I wanted to bring people closer but the way in which I was delivering it was quite harsh and brutal and therefore quite assertive or or abrasive. So I wanted to make people laugh and like me but I was actually behaving in a way that produced the opposite outcome. So I was very fortunate that I had people that made me aware of that and so they pulled me up on it um, because sometimes we can't become aware of of our own shit. We need people to bring it to our attention and that's when you've got to be open to feedback. So that was another tool that I utilised. I was open to feedback. And then the last thing I did was meditate. I just learned how to meditate, I learned how to tune in and tune out.
0: You know, one of the things I love as a as a, a saying is that energy flows where attention goes. I mean that. That yeah. is part of what drives our energy in our body about what we choose to focus on and see and the reality that we, we choose to live by. And it's it's such a shift. So so thank you for providing a couple of those tools. The, the second question I had in relation to what you were mentioning before, Lane, was about between the sixth and the seventh where you said you had some work to do, how does an athlete who's won six world titles could easily justify to say, "No, I'm going okay," and here's the evidence and here's the data. Actually, make the shift in your mind to go into the courageous place of saying, "Let me reflect." I mean, because you've won six by a certain habit and routine and that tiger shark in you. Um, what makes you want to change for the seventh? Because lots of people would continue to just do the same behaviour to try and get the same result.
1: I was broken. As I said earlier, my body just wasn't going to allow me to keep going. I was adrenal. I had adrenal fatigue. I had. I was addressing several different injuries in my my neck and my hips and my in my back and my knees, and emotionally, I just was. I was depleted, and and it's amazing, you know. I did come back the following year, in two thousand and four, fitter and stronger than I was in two thousand and three. However, I started to, it's amazing how much I can push through and we can do this as human beings and I continued to push through and push through because I saw all of the things that were wrong with me as something to overcome and that's how I addressed every aspect, every challenge in my life. Like that's just an opportunity for growth. That's just something I need to overcome. That's just something that I need to overcome. And sooner or later, if these patterns continue to repeat themselves time and time again, then why is this happening for you? Why is this something that you have to overcome time and time again? Where's the lesson going to be learned where you've actually got to learn to realize that your body needs a break? When are you going to stop and listen to your body? All it's demanding is rest and nutrition and hydration but we believe that if I rest, then I'll miss a day of training. And if I miss a day of training, then I might put on weight. And if I put on weight, then I'm going to have to go on a diet. And so we create these apocalyptic assumptions that if we just skip one day, then that's going to have this snowball effect for the rest of the year. <laughs> so you've got to keep things in perspective. And after I won my sixth world title, I gained some perspective just by taking a break. And just I just had a look, what's working it was basically what they referred to as digest, rest and recalibrate. So digest what went well, what didn't go well, what can I improve on? Rest. Okay, Where am I at? How am I feeling? What's my body asking for? And then recalibrate. Okay, next next step is, what am I walking into? What do I need to how do I need to prepare for this? What do I want to get out of it? And so if I maintain that routine, and was honest with myself in the answers to the questions, it was obvious that I needed to change the way I was going about it because it was an unsustainable model for success, the way I won world title number two to six.
0: And did you do that through journaling or was it just a thought process at the end of the day in a, in a quiet space or in terms of reflecting on those questions?
1: Journaling definitely helped. That definitely gave me uh, a safe place to share my thoughts, and some of them are quite scary, and some of them are quite fierce, and some of them are quite sad, uh, and it brought up <clears throat> definitely a, a multitude of emotions. Um, but it was a safe place to do it. So, and I've relied on journaling since I was seven years old. I'm actually looking at a tub of journals that I've had my whole life sitting over here in my office, and uh, and I love reading back on them because we don't remember the shit, we don't remember the pain why women keep having babies we don't remember we don't remember how hard it was we we just focus on the good times and it's healthy to to reflect on some of the things you went through and go oh my god that's right now I remember how hard that was or how shit that was or how frustrated I was during that period that's right I've really learned valuable lessons from that journaling meditation yoga actually it was a matter of slowing down and doing things that were more Uh, compassionate and nourishing. You know, we think sometimes we need to speed things up and become more intense. But for me, it was the opposite because I already was really intense. So I had to slow it all down to speed it all back up.
0: It's so good because the the power is in being able to see those patterns of behaviour, isn't it? Not just the negative ones, but the ones where we have strength and resilience and courage and care and compassion as much as the stuff that we can easily focus on you know with our bias to the negative often but both are, are equally powerful when we're able to see what's holding us back and and also be able to see the patterns to say well there're actually some great skills and qualities I have that can help me shift the needle on some things that matter to me or or want to motivate me to something different so it doesn't have to be journaling obviously no. I wanted to, to ask or, or move away a little bit because obviously surfing's been one career, but you've, you've got this whole other career that you have moved into. And the, the starting point for me in asking you or wanting to ask you is that can be often a difficult transition for people, particularly those who have had, you know, long or su- successful careers, whether that be sport or in one industry and they've been downsized or have to move into a different industry. What's enabled you to make that transition so successfully and so well?
1: Time, patience, mentors, feedback, courage, vulnerability, acceptance.
0: Can you unpack some of those for us? <laughs> <around>? <laughs> I'd hate to lose the wisdom that we've uh, that we've got because of a poor interviewer.
1: You know, it took me a while to transition to. To life outside of professional surfing. I had identified myself as a professional athlete and then a world champion athlete for 20 years of my life fresh out of high school. So, you know, I went through states of relevance deprivation. I went through states of fear. I went through states of loss of identity and purpose and direction. I kept saying yes to everybody and everything in the hope, which is not a good strategy, to become, you know, or to find my next great focus or passion or <laughs> direction in life and i really had to stop saying yes i really had to define what were some of the barriers i was putting up or well, what are some of the barriers actually preventing me from creating boundaries and uh, the boundaries We're learning to say no. The boundaries were staying firm in my truth and making great decisions. The boundaries were prioritizing my health and well-being. And I wasn't doing that because I was saying yes to everyone and everything and spreading myself too thin and showing up to everything and, oh, Lane will do that. Uh, I became the yes girl, the pilot girl,
0: and is that a relevance thing too, Lane, in the sense of the, yeah. there's obviously a clear relevance of I'm a surfer but then I'm not anymore, same as a sports person or a CEO, and, and then it's like, well, where's my relevance now? And so without that clearly defined, everything might be the opportunity.
1: Yeah, the relevance deprivation definitely ends up being a, becoming a scarcity mentality, and then the scarcity mentality then It prevents you from saying no and then also fills you full of expectations, expectations of who you think you're meant to be. So we tend to create these barriers instead of boundaries and the boundaries comes from your decision-making process and how you make that decision-making process. So after a few years of feeling lost (laughs) and passionless um, and feeling like I had no direction in life, I decided to seek a mentor and a couple of different mentors, which I still have in my life. And um, she helped me establish a decision-making process and helped me define where my relevance deprivation was coming from. And and it was all fear-based, of course, um, because I was rooted in ego. All of of our egos are, are there to keep us safe and keep us motivated and keep us in a life of mediocrity and control and uh, every time you step outside of that, your ego basically pipes up and goes, no, wait, you can't. <laughs> you can't do that. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. No one's going to care. And so then you pull back and then your ego goes, see, I told you so. And so then you become right. Yeah. Has whoever's listening got a headache? <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you imagine living in my brain? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, one of the good things I think i found through the listenership is being People who are subscribing and listening, um, and thank you for doing so. It, they're not people who want sound bites and five steps. Um, they're people who want to hear stories and and be able to a- apply it back to their own circumstance to say there are three things, five things that I can take away from listening to to think about. And I call it moving mental furniture around. You know, we often can say, what does it look like if that goes over there, and how does that feel, and what might the shape of that look like, or my thinking change if I took that and put it into a different context or a different place? You, you mentioned about uh, your own mantra of happy, healthy, fit, and strong. Is that yes. is that something that that came out of seeking that relevance as a mantra? Have you always had that? Do
1: people ever ask you um, how do you find your purpose, and or how do you know what's right for you? And I often answer the question, well, you can always start with what's not right. You know, you can always start with what's wrong. Yes. Um, and, and when it comes to your purpose, you, you need to go back to your childhood and to find out, you know, what excites you, what lights you up, what gets you up in the morning. Um, <clears throat> you don't need to go to India or sit on the top of a mountain for 10 days to find yourself. You can literally just get up and look in the mirror. I can shortcut that struggle for you. When it comes to um, finding a mantra, for me, the reflection actually came from that that time during that relevance deprivation where I used to go on holidays uh, after a, a very long period of work and then I would fall sick straight off, you know, the immediate time that I would get there and it just became normal. I was like, oh, yeah, I just get sick in the first week I go on holidays and, and then, you know, a variety of different things. You know, I, I just get fat. Um, and I say all these things to, me, to myself and then they just become like these self-fulfilling prophecies over time because they're just repetitive patterns that are default settings that you just rely on because they're familiar. And after a while I realised these patterns aren't really serving me very well. They're not, they're not the place I really want to find myself. I don't like getting sick ever because I spent so much time sick as a kid. Yeah, And I certainly don't like getting fat because I pride myself on feeling good in, in my body and, and looking after myself. So I started to change the dialogue and the the discipline and the ability to change the dialogue actually was learned when I was winning from, or competing for my sixth consecutive world title where someone randomly handed me a copy of Conversations with God. Have you read it? No, I haven't. Conversations with God. It's a dialogue written by Neil Donald Walsh and, and what, I, what I got from the book, what I gleaned from the book was the two most powerful words in the English language are I am because what you put after them literally shapes your reality. I am is literally a declaration to the universe and the way that the subconscious and the conscious mind works is the subconscious mind cannot differentiate between what's imagined and what's real. The conscious mind, it's the captain of the ship. It's saying due north and the and the subconscious mind's in the engine room going, yep, cool, let's make it so. And then the conscious mind goes, no, actually I want to go east. And then the subconscious mind goes, yep, I can't, okay, let's make it so. It never, reali- never rationalises or judges or criticises or doubts. It just goes, yep, sure, yep, okay, yep, that's cool. And so – how that works in a dialogue sense is if one day you say, I'm fat, lazy, and stupid, your subconscious mind goes, Okay, cool, yep, let's make it so. And then the next day, if you say, I'm happy, healthy, fit, and strong, yep, cool, let's make it so. So the power of I am was what enabled me to win my sixth world title. I lost touch with it for a little while, and then I realized the power of it. And so I've brought it back into my consciousness, where I, as I said earlier, if I have this natural deep predisposition to being negative and self deprecating and fearful, then I need to break the cycle predominantly starting with my self-talk because the relationship that I have with myself sets the tone for every relationship I have with every other, every other person in my life. So I need to feel good about me. And so I want to be happy, I want to be healthy, I want to be fit, and I want to be strong. So therefore I reassure myself with a mantra every day that that's exactly who I am. So I'm currently building a course a seven-week course on helping people align themselves with their truth. And when you are fully aligned with your truth, you will feel more confident. You will feel happier. You will feel more congruent with who you are and what you do. That way, external circumstances will no longer be dictating themselves to you and therefore you will no longer be a a rudderless boat. So what we're focusing on in this course is helping people get very clear and congruent about how they want to feel because I believe everything we do is based on how we want to feel, the clothes that we wear, the people that we hang out with, the food that we eat, the alcohol, or the amount of alcohol we drink. Um, and a lot of the times we're actually doing things to numb our feelings because we're afraid of how we feel because actually we've never even, we've never even understood about maybe we've never even understood what feelings truly are.
0: It can often be a replacement behaviour, can't it? The yeah. things we're doing is sort of to, to mask or judge or overcome the thing that we're really feeling.
1: Yes, exactly. So if that's the case, if, what we, if we stop and take a, take a snapshot of the story that we're currently telling ourselves, which is fulfilling our self-fulfilling prophecy, we have to ask ourselves, how is this story making me feel? Do I feel happy do I feel aligned do I feel awakened do I feel congruent like do I feel in control or do I feel like I'm a victim and that I'm useless and that I'm really unlucky and I'm such a klutz and you know you hear these things people say to themselves so where I'm going to with this is the story we need to rewrite the story based on how we want to feel so say for example story is I'm, I'm incredibly unlucky or my life sucks. <laughs> the, story is, the story is I hate my job and the judgment is my life sucks. The proof of that is I have to go in or, you know, I have to sit in traffic for two hours a day or three hours a day and then I go to a job where people don't respect me or appreciate me. You know, you can seek evidence of that all day and then, That fuels the belief that you're not worthy of respect and so then you feel disrespected or, you know, dissatisfied or unhappy and that becomes your story. And so how do we rewrite the story? Well, actually we start with the feeling. How do I want to feel? I want to feel respected. I want to feel accepted. So what's the story that I can create that will help me make me feel that way? And that's what, we help, that's what we will help people do in this course is help people rewrite the story and then align themselves with their truth, align their dream team with their truth, and then give them tools and, and tips and tools and a full toolkit actually to awaken themselves to their truth.
0: Yeah, great. Look, we'll make sure that, that we'll include that in the show notes so that people can access, uh, access that um, for those who are intrigued and interested and, and want to find out more. And what's what inspires you about that sort of work now? That transformative work and 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 change work with people and
1: awakening people awakens me. So it's a mutual opportunity. <laughs> you know, I love I love seeing people have aha moments and breakthroughs, and, and also because I know how beneficial they've been in my life.
0: Lane, I think that's just a brilliant place to end our conversation. You've just offered a, a wealth of wisdom in about. 45 to 50 minutes that I know people listening, including the host, um, have found exceptionally valuable. So I just want to say thank you for your time. Thanks for the wisdom and thanks for being a great guest on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me and for everyone that's listened and tuned in. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Just a couple of things for those of you who are listening for the first time before we wrap up. If you enjoyed this episode and think it would be good company for your drive home, commute on the train, or mental fuel during that daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform or head to andrewhorsefieldcom forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, videos, white papers, and recommended reading that's going to help you move your mental furniture about people and performance then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.